if you believe the world is zero sum, then you've missed the point of venture. And I don't know if you're ever going to be a successful venture capitalist if you don't understand the growing the pie bigger approach. Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind the scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. Bank Tech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize the impact for community banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to Bank Tech Ventures banktechventures.com. My guest today is Winter Mead, who is the founder and CEO of Cool Water Capital. And he created this to really create a differentiated way to help emerging managers launch, build, and scale their venture funds. He's been a huge advocate for the next generation of venture fund managers and even built an academy to train them. Uh, he cut his teeth in the VC world at some storied firms, Hall Capital and Sapphire Ventures, where he really got exposed to things like micro venture capital, a lot of emerging managers, and even more. Uh, we met a few years ago when he was first launching his academy for emerging managers, and I was so impressed in how he thinks about them, about training and supporting them, and his desire to just do something entrepreneurial and different. I know a bunch of his graduates and several of them are just the best emerging managers that I could think of. And I was super excited to finally record a conversation with him. Winter, thanks for joining me. Super excited. Gary, thanks so much. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's start. It's a new year. Always a good time to kind of think about current state of things. How are you thinking about the current state of, of venture capital? It's been obviously a wild few years. Emerging managers at a point felt great, and now are probably feeling the opposite of great. So as we enter this new year, how are you thinking about life uh, for emerging managers? Yeah, I'm fairly optimistic, right? But that may just be me. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely pro-innovation, pro-technology, I think taking a step back, what is the market sentiment, right? And when when did it change and what is it now? Going back a couple of years now, for me, and again, giving you my perspective, I talked to a thousand plus teams looking to form venture funds every year, right? So every quarter, literally talking to hundreds of, of teams. And then we run over 200 events in our community mm -hmm. per year. So we have a lot of sense of like, what, what is going on? And again, what's the sentiment? What are people thinking? How are people acting and reacting? It felt like the sentiment really started to shift in kind of May-ish 2022, mm -hmm. right? And then there's just been a lot of volatility and caution since then, right? And so I think if you remember the conversation end of 2022, it was like, okay, Let's see how this plays out. Things are definitely trending down. This is not 2020, 2021 anymore. 2023 was, I think, people waiting quarter over quarter for things to really shift, especially in the pre-seed and seed stage market, waiting for those prices to come down. And mm -hmm. that didn't necessarily happen, right? Exactly. A lot of dry powder, a lot of fun proliferation, 
a lot of folks looking to actively deploy, right? And, you know, if fundraising isn't going well, maybe you turn your attention to doing deals. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like the, the pricing didn't necessarily shift over the 2023 market. And now that we're at 2024, right, it feels like the, the GP sentiment does feel like pricing has softened a little bit. It, it does feel like there's renewed interest in fundraising for new venture funds, right? We're starting to see some of that sentiment change in, in early 2024, hearing that both from LPs as well, where again, like they kind of press pause for 2023, waiting for some of the market dynamics to shake out, waiting for some of these newer fund portfolios to mature a little bit more. So yeah, I think what's the outlook for 2024 feels like, you know, along with my optimism, optimism from some other LPs that are looking to actively deploy into venture feels like VCs are, are, you know, optimistic at the start of the year. Maybe, maybe some budgets are opening up, but they're actively fundraising now. I'd say more actively than 2023, where some people just like wrapped it up or they put extensions on their funds, right? So they could roll into 2024 by another, you know, three, six, nine months. So I kind of saw that playing out in the second half of 2023. But yeah, I think, you know, fundraising feels like it's getting, you know, a little bit busier. It feels like the volatility of early 2023 has come down a little bit. And so GPs are, yes, focused on navigating their existing portfolios, but also looking at this vast talent market, right? That That is a, a result of the 2022-2023 market and finding some like very compelling teams, some very compelling opportunities to invest into at some softened prices. So I mean, if you're a GP, I think you're optimistic. If you're an LP, I think you're getting excited about some of these market dyna- dynamics. Mm, great, great overview. Uh, I'm curious, as you think about on the LP side, obviously you you spend a lot of time, as you said, with emerging managers and teams looking to form. Are you seeing uh, equivalent growth in what I'll call emerging LPs, not maybe just your historical institutional ones, but newer groups that haven't participated that maybe recognize these downturn times are usually the greatest time to come in to an asset like this? I may have a skewed perspective. So just because of how our model works. So taking a step back, what is Coolwater? We're an incubator accelerator that helps find, source, ideate, launch, and scale investment firms, mainly venture firms, right? And so we've built this community. This community has grown quite significantly. So we now have over 200 funds, over 300 founder GPs, over 7,000 companies that they've invested into, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a community that, that continues to, to scale. But I think what I'm seeing in terms of fund proliferation is that's that's kind of like grown very massively over the last five to seven years. And I think you've also seen some of those like find really good companies very early and generate, you know, five and 10 X funds. And therefore, like, I think that like the performance of the last five or 10 years of the emerging manager camp, and even going back further than that, right. I think is leading to more LPs like coming into the market. So I view the market. I think what we've built with Coolwater, this community of a lot of GPs, uh, a lot of LPs, a lot more transparency in terms of like understanding just what's in the market, how GPs have performed, I think is leading to yeah, a lot of new new LPs kind of um, getting excited about, about the emerging GP class. Very good. 
Well, we were talking a little bit about this before. You know, I, I've been investing in startups for 20 years, both you know ones that I've been deeply involved with, as well as just others on the side, mostly while I was operating. I, I would say, you know, I've had some success, but also paid a lot of tuition along the way. How do you help someone determine when or if they should do this as a full-time endeavor? According to the data in cool water, the average fund that comes through our program has made about 10 to 20 investments. It's usually a little bit more, like so over 20, if you're an angel investor, right? So you're honing your thesis and maybe it's closer to 30 or 40 or even 50 angel investments, right? Where you've kind of gained perspective and you've developed an investment thesis. So from just a pure like number of deals that you've done, like where do people, where do GPs usually feel comfortable to start their first fund? That's usually the, those are usually the numbers that, that I see. And then I guess you have to ask like, what are you learning? And like, how quickly are you learning that? And is what you're learning actually relevant to being a fund manager, right? So I think there's kind of two perspectives here. One is like, when do you, when do you know internally as a GP that you want to become a fund manager? And then you actually have to become the fund manager. So I think that the decision of becoming a fund manager, like have I paid enough tuition and, and do I really like doing this is different than I'm actually going to like train myself now, right? Like, okay, I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to try to become a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. How much do you actually have to train to do that? Right. I, I think there's a moment in time where people build conviction in themselves and in kind of like what their career path is going to be. And they really have to love it. Right. Like that's what I'm looking for at cool water is long-term alignment, right? Not just like, you know, I think the FOMO of being a VC in 2021, it's a very different dynamic than am I going to be a fund manager in today's market in 2024, right? It's a very different, much more conscious choice that GPs seem, seem to be making, but hopefully that gives some, some numbers to like, what, what tuition am, am I actually paying? How do you think you, you kind of was starting down that path? I mean, it, it, it is one of those like super glamorized jobs, if you will. I'm not fully convinced people understand the full scope of the actual work, right? I mean, being an angel versus raising and managing an institutional fund are fairly different as far as just the type of work, whether it's it's not that dissimilar in my mind from being a startup founder to being in scale growth optimization mode, that the, the actual work you do starts to change. Do you think people have a fair understanding of that? Or do you think you, you, you kind of see uh, a good number who don't realize it until they're doing it? Probably the latter. feels like a lot of emerging managers don't realize the full scope of work, but that's probably similar with a startup as well, right? Oh, for sure. And yeah. so you, you almost, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. You, you kind of mm-hmm. want Right, some of that ambition, and you know, if you're curious enough, and like I said, you've you've kind of made the decision, and you know, I'm going to commit a number of years to launching this, and even more years to you know perfecting it. I think that's kind of the mentality and the personality you need to be successful. But yeah, I think hands down, most emerging managers 
underestimate what this job actually is. And cool water tries to actually help managers understand that, right? Before they become managers, right? Because once you take other people's money and you're managing as a fiduciary, like it's kind of a different, it's kind of a different game than if you're an angel, right? Mm -hmm. And so like investing with your own money, like, like there's a lot more responsibility. And, and like you said, the scale growth optimization, like there are other things you have to think about on the operation side, on the management side, organizational growth, right? It's not all just about finding the next hottest deal, but there's a lot of you know fund management that goes into building the business now. And I think there has to be a passion for both operating as well as investing, right? At the beginning, that decision we were talking about, about becoming a fund manager, like has to begin with you loving investing and wanting to do this as a career, right? And finding that the intellectual challenge, but then you also have to love the operating piece, or at least be good at organizational growth where you can like hire to solve that for you, right? And know kind of what you're hiring for. But yeah, that scaling, that that optimization, those phases, those pieces of the puzzle, like are absolutely necessary. Again, you can get away with it the way, you know, the cool water perspective is you can get away with some of it, even though we're very institutionally biased, like you can get away with some of that at fund one, right? Like you don't need to build the Rolls mm -hmm. Royce at fund one. But if you want to scale and graduate from fund one to fund two, yes, LPs will be focused on performance, but they'll also be focused on what you're actually building as an institution and as a business. And so the cool water approach is, right, kind of a pre-fund manager perspective, a fund manager perspective, and a scaling a fund manager perspective, right? Where the pre-fund manager is, do what you want to do. Do you want to do this long-term? Mm -hmm. The fund manager perspective is, hey, you got to start building this as a seed stage startup. You got to put in some business processes, right? Like you don't have to build everything now, but you are becoming a, a business, especially as you start to build out your portfolio, right? And then it becomes harder to manage that portfolio. And there's just a lot more you're doing in terms of portfolio management that you didn't have to do at you know day zero. And then there's the fund manager kind of scale process, which mm -hmm. is, okay, great. I've built out this first portfolio. I've got you know, 20, 30, 40 assets in the portfolio. I need to build something real here if I'm going to raise my next fund. And this is going to become like, you know, a bigger business with larger amounts of portfolio management on the day-to-day, -day, right? And like, what are you actually building here? And so I think that that in part is like you loving operating a little bit, right? But it's also probably making the decision at some point in those, you know, three phases, pre-manager, manager, manager at scale of, you know, what type of manager do you want to be and what type of business do you want to build? And, you know, within, you know, the, the building a fund manager career, like there are different permutations, right? Like you, you can do it as a solo GP. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard, you know, even harder to scale as a solo GP, but you could do it that way and emphasize picking versus value add, or, you know, you could do it with more people, right? And so emphasize kind of, Picking obviously, but value add as well. So more people at the firm. And I think there's different ways to build a build a venture firm. And again, these are different decisions you don't have to always make on day one. Mm -hmm. 
as you look back across, you know, the the history of folks that you've worked with and maybe some of the the newer emerging managers, are you seeing any differences in the latest generation of emerging managers versus prior era? Or are there some common characteristics that you think consistently exist? Yeah, really, really good question. I would say in 2023, given it was a tougher fundraising market and that, again, the cost of capital had gone up, mm-hmm. the person that was more biased to start a venture firm had more operational background than not, right? And I would even say, you know, I'm generalizing here, that there are more prior founders, right? So they'd already demonstrated that behavior of founding something else. And, you know, the founder mentality is a very unique mentality. And so I, I did see that kind of in what had people done before and were they willing to do it in 2023? It felt like those focused on fund formation, especially de novo, starting a new firm, did have more operating and, and founder experience than you know, the 2020, 2021 crowd, mm-hmm. where again, it was the f- fundraising market was different. And I'd argue there were many more people from many different backgrounds, not just founder and operator background kind of getting sure. getting into the business. And do you think that founder background is one of the most critical or our higher probability of success uh, backgrounds for an emerging fund investor versus not? Not not necessarily, right? Like there are different ways to get into business. So I almost think in venture success begets success. So if you're, you know, if you don't have that founder or operator background, but you've been very successful with your early track record, right? Like you can spin that into a successful platform obviously requires some management, requires some skill, requires some focus. But I think that's, you know, one way to to get into the business that's not necessarily you being a founder. I think, you know, personality wise, like maybe you have a founder personality, but you don't necessarily, you haven't necessarily, you know, been a founder in the past, but mm-hmm. you have that grit to kind of keep pushing forward and just be relentless in the, the first fund, right? To get it off the ground. And then again, success can be, beget success on, on that front. So I've, I've seen that. I've seen it where there's kind of like an aura, like depending on like the background of where you worked, the company, like the, the market perception of the company or the market perception of the investment firm that you're coming out of, right? Like again, not necessarily a founder, but very well-trained, really sophisticated perspective, really understand the VC model, either from like the VC growth perspective or the VC investing perspective. Those people tend to be pretty successful. Mm-hmm. I would argue it's more those people like in a camp of their own that probably raise the most amount of money, right? Cause like institutions have already seen them either in their portfolio already, either on the company side or the VC fund, firm side, I'd say those people raise the most amount of money to start, you know, and you can kick off with a 50, 100, $200 million fund. If you're already a known entity in, in the ecosystem. And again, like, are they founders? Yes. Because they're starting their own firm. Mm-hmm. I would argue there's still operating risk there right? Because they haven't started something in the past and it's going to be a very different exercise 
of now like running their own business versus like, if you've run your own business in the past, like there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you wouldn't, wouldn't be used to doing that you now have to get used to doing. So I think there be like more challenges on like the scaling and the growth and even thinking through like what it means to optimize because you're becoming kind of a founder for the, for the first time. But yeah, those, those GPs are definitely out there. And I don't think it necessarily just has to be you founded something in the past and now you're going to decide to found a, a VC firm. There's, there's different ways, I think, to, to get into the business. Um, there's more archetypes than what I just mentioned there, but those are a sure. few. Oh, it makes a ton of sense. I, I'm curious as you think about either what you would recommend or what you've seen as an early fund. So you're in your first fund in the first few years of your first fund. Are there any things that if you can see that happen in those early years sort of sets you up uh, at a big advantage for subsequent, like an early exit or liquidity or markup or something in your early portfolio? Like Because the feedback loop and the signal in some cases can take a long time which is always one of the challenges, I think, for early managers. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things here. Again, probably probably a more, more exhaustive list, but trying to get early fall-on rounds, mm-hmm. right? To demonstrate that there's third-party validation in your portfolio. So that's definitely something to try to focus on. And again, a lot of this stuff comes down to portfolio management, strangely. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when you're an emerging manager, you're thinking about fundraising, you're thinking about doing deals. You're not necessarily thinking about portfolio management, like managing the deals you've done. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, what is my next deal? How does that kind of flow into my fundraising process? But I do think they're, you know, to your question, like some of the answers to that question are actually more on the, you know, portfolio management side. Yeah, trying to get fallen rounds, early exits definitely generating liquidity early never hurts. Yeah. I think showing traction. Again, it's usually third-party validation of like a markup um, that, you know, for better or for worse, demonstrates more traction than traction itself, meaning like actual revenue growth. Because I think it's just harder for the LP to see that if you're trying to, you know, scale up your firm. But again, knowing how to present that information, again, something we focus on at Cool Waters, like mm-hmm. helping you build the internal reporting, like what do I, what do LPs actually care about, like you know, what should you, what data should you be capturing? What data should you be sharing? How should you share it? You know, how is it, how should you present it? So it's digestible, things like that. You know, all of that, I think if you, if you spend time, which sometimes, you know, maybe again, like you'd rather be spending it fundraising or doing your next deal, but if you sometimes spend time, you know, on the business instead of in the business, like that can be helpful. Like we run uh, part of the Academy, we run a back office program called strategic Mm -hmm. CFO, where we actually build out your back office and help you think through some of this, like, how would you actually build some of these reports to share it with LPs? Right. And I think that's a really important thing. Like if you do that early and LPs actually know what you're, what you're building and how things are going, whether you've knocked it out of the park or just like had some traction, the fact that they know you're doing what you said you're going to do and there's some traction is better than you saying like, you know, look at it's two years and I have a 10 X fund. Like, right. It's more like mm-hmm. every quarter, look at everything I'm doing. Right. And they can kind of track it 
invest in lines, not dots approach. I think that's kind of really, really important and maybe a little bit nuanced of of an answer, but pretty important. And then, yeah, like other things like who you bring on, right? The one plus one equals three, you know, that's pretty important. You know, I mentioned solo GPs, like you can scale as a solo GP, but I think in this market, I would say LPs care more about, you know, more robust organizational growth. So who you bring on is pretty important. And then, yeah, other other things which are just harder to accelerate to make a success story around, but, you know, concepts like vintage diversification, right? Where, you know, you're sitting, sitting around twiddling your thumbs, but, but, you know, if you've invested into some good companies, fast forward two years, three years, you know, you've done your vintage diversification in the portfolio, like that can actually, you know, be a competitive advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Where we had a time a couple of years ago where funds were coming back every year mm-hmm. again, because the cost of capital was less and there were a lot of folks chasing yield in early stage capital markets. But now that that market cycle has receded a bit, right? Like there's other kind of these more traditional concepts that if you think about are relevant when, when trying to scale and, and trying to become successful. Oh, super, super valuable insights there. That's that's awesome. Let's let's talk a little bit about just VC as a asset class and structure. I mean, there, there's been a lot of data showing concentration of capital amongst a fewer number of firms in with significance. And you know, the, I feel like the startup market tends to adjust and adapt to the capital swings, business models, and things that are shifting. I'm not sure I buy that VC makes those shifts as certainly not as quickly. And I'm wondering if you think they should be. Like, do you think as as the underlying startup market shift, should VCs be quickly shifting as well? And if it should change, how do you think it needs to change for this next season? So your, your questions around, like, if we start talking about Gen AI, then everyone needs a Gen AI investment strategy. I don't know. I mean, should they, or could it, could it be, yeah, should they or... be adapting or, or even just their, their model of, you know, funds, if you had a billion dollar seed series A fund, and now the, the market's gone back to demanding more capital efficient startups, should they shrink the size and, or, you know, adjust in some way. Yeah. There's a few, I feel like there's a few questions in there, but mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I got for, tons. Like, how do you, how do you, a couple ways to think about it maybe is why did firms scale up in the first place? Mm-hmm. Candidly, it, it does feel like the cost of capital was a big, big player there and being, being opportunistic in that type of market, which has led to a lot of scale, but, it, but it's also some of the, actual VC market dynamics of companies were raising more, right? They're mm-hmm. staying private for longer. It was more competitive. So it required more dollars to compete. You know, one of the biggest expenses, like the cost of, you know, labor and talent went up, right? So you just fundamentally, like there are a lot of kind of things playing to larger mm-hmm. rounds, more dollars needed to be invested. And just the way portfolio construction math works, right? Like the need to buy equivalent ownership at mm-hmm. larger prices, which also meant kind of larger rounds. 
So a bunch of dynamics at play that kind of led to larger and larger fund sizes. Again, I think there's there's you know definitely a you know, if you're ambitious, curious person trying to build a firm, right? The inevitable path is scale AUM, right? But I, I think some of the best performing investors of all time have embraced this idea of patience mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, what is the tier one opportunity set that I can invest into at any point in time? Like what is my actual investment market size? Is it $10 million a year into this part, like to like actually sure. generate outperformance or is it a billion dollars a year to generate mm-hmm. outperformance? Um, I mean, there's other factors like the LPs that are investing into that, like what returns do they want? Do they want a 10% IRR or do they want a 10X fund over, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years? So there's kind of, it kind of depends like where's, where's the money coming from and, you know, what is the macro market doing? What is the micro kind of market doing you know, within VC? There's a lot of kind of dynamics that I think smarter money managers are thinking through to really assess like, do I scale up? Should I scale up? And if I scale up, like how does that, that change my strategy? And so, you know, consistently cool water being, you know, very focused on early stage, you know, what we see is, you know, success begets success. You raise five, then 15, then 25, 50, then a hundred. And you've kind of like, you've moved into become a potentially series A firm and you moved away from being, you know, initially when you started a pre-C firm. So mm-hmm. again, there's always going to be emerging managers that kind of opens up the market to a new pre-seed entrant, sure. right? So, and then I think your your question on, so I think that dynamic will continue continually play out. Like as long as you have successful managers, most, right? Like 98% of them will scale up AUM. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's really the exceptions that choose to keep the same strategy, right? But I, I would challenge the market and like challenge the listeners. Like if you're a fund manager, like, why would you go from 10 to 20, right? Like, are you going to be able to generate the same performance mm-hmm. by going to 10 to 20? And is that the right thing to do? And I do think if you're thinking about it from the LP perspective, you know, does this fit the strategy? Does this change the strategy? Does this change the portfolio construction? Does this change the ability to generate outperformance if you if you scale? And it may not be yeah, as I think, profound, uh, like 10 to 20 may not be as profound of a difference as 200 to 400 million, for example, right? right? Like yeah. the challenges so, may get totally. way more pronounced as you get farther down that. Yeah. And growth. I think I think what I've seen is there's definitely, to your original question, like, you know, billion dollar fund sizes, are they coming back down? I have seen... And I think there's some, you know, stories in the media as well as some bigger funds, haircutting, mm-hmm. right? I haven't seen, and maybe this is just because I just haven't seen it, but I haven't seen a lot of funds giving back money saying like, hey, I don't actually think I can return a 5X fund with this much capital. Maybe that's happening. I, I have I have not seen it. I had seen it in the past, like, yeah, I feel like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. but I've not seen it yet in this market. Yeah, but yeah, you know, people are seeing it out there. You know, feel free to reach out. Curious to curious to hear what and how that's happening. But should they shrink the fund size? Like my perspective is, yeah, it's not up to me. It's up to them. But if you're if the responsibility is like making you know returns for your LPs, asking yourself what's the right opportunity set and 
fund size to address that opportunity set is a really important thing to think through. And I'd argue, yeah, like, you know, if you're raising a AI fund in 2023, how competitive is this market? Mm-hmm. How, how big does your fund size need to be competitive? Right. And even if you're competitive and you're buying in, like, are the market dynamics so out of whack where pricing is so high that you might not actually be able to return, you know, an outperformance fund to your LPs at the end of the day. So again, there's a lot of things you have to think about. Yeah. I feel like I addressed some of them in that response, but not all of them. I feel like there's a lot of things you have to think about as a managing GP and deciding like, yeah, just how big your fund should be at any point in time. And especially if you've gone up really hard to kind of like, you know, march back down. Like once you've changed your lifestyle, right. To a certain lifestyle, are you willing to kind of like sacrifice and give up stuff, right. To kind of reset. And my experience, a lot of people are unwilling to do that. Even if it's I the think right that thing is to do. almost universally true. That's right. I'm, I'm one of the few people I know who is actively taken 50% pay cuts or more multiple times in my career, because I felt like the opportunity on the other side was worth it. Right. But that's a rare, I'm, I'm probably crazy because of that, but yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and it's not just the, the GP, right. In some cases they've got an infrastructure that has a, a fairly high fixed cost that they want to perpetuate as well. So it's an interesting question for sure. I am curious though, do you think VC is a scale business? I, I have contemplated for a long time. I'm not sure I believe it is. I mean, obviously, as some of the institutional LPs have gotten so massive, their minimum check sizes have gotten so big that they can only take a certain percentage of a fund and you got to be big enough to be in that game for them in some cases, right? So I would even say some cases they've driven some of that behavior. But I'm curious, like, do you think this thing can drive value at scale? Potentially. I mean, I think you have to buy into the assumption that you know, you're trying to do a few things, right? Like if you raise so much capital for a big fund, how do you return it, right? Like if you raise a lot of money, you have to write big checks. Mm-hmm. If you're writing big checks, you're going to be investing for the most part, mid to later stage, and it's harder to buy significant ownership, right? And then again, like what is your return profile? Like what what hurdle are you trying to reach for a return, right? Is it a 2X? It's probably very different if you're a much larger fund, mm-hmm. right? And so I view... I view there's like a difference between VC capital and growth capital. For sure. Right? And That's I think why I call sometimes, it specifically VC. Yeah. Yeah. But I even say like a lot of the VCs in the market of the last few years have become more like focused on growth investing for sure than VC investing. And I even see it like playing an early stage where, you know, there's certain risk you're taking around team and business and market and product. Whereas some early stage VCs won't take those types of risk, right? Like the product already has a lot of proof points. The market is pretty baked, right? Like it's kind of obvious. Like if you're able to kind of like dial in the product, right? The the business is already like fairly developed. Like the team is like pretty developed. Like there's so there are VCs that'll mitigate those risks. There are VCs that'll like, you know, really take a lot of risk across those different vectors. And then, you know, I think if you scale up, you're effectively providing growth capital, like you're not necessarily providing VC capital. Like it's a, it's a, it's a business that's trying to really scale, 
right? Like these, you know, unicorn plus companies that are taking billions of dollars, like they're really trying to achieve like universal scale, mm-hmm. right? And if you think of like, what are the upper bounds of the market, right? Like the the end game is public markets, probably in the US, like get, trying to be like, you know, the hundred billion plus, you know, up to trillion dollar company. Like that's the end game for a few exceptional companies. And so if that's the company you're trying to invest into, right? And I started to hear this, like, you know, quote, like 10 plus years ago, where I think as soon as, or maybe it was less than that, maybe like six years ago, but as soon as maybe it was Apple, the first company to like hit a trillion, mm-hmm. right? As soon as you hit that market cap, it was like the name of the game was, okay, what's the next trillion dollar business we're going to invest into, right? And so if you move the scale, right? Like if the upper bound changes, which it has, then it's kind of saying like, hey, you can actually 10X a hundred billion dollar company, which is crazy to think about, mm-hmm. right? Like, and then I, I do think it was the entrance of SoftBank that mm-hmm. kind of also changed people's perspective as well, where, right? Like the largest VC fund up until SoftBank, I think was only $2 billion, mm-hmm. right? And so they changed the perception of scale as well. And then you had some of these very great success stories that, that, you know, have come to market and have scaled either mainly in the public markets that I think has allowed people to be playing like a different game. But I don't think it's the VC game anymore. If you raise that much money, I think you're playing a different game and it's more on like the hyperscale, mm-hmm. but growth investing where there's hopefully a lot of mitigated risks that you wouldn't necessarily have to take if you were you know, if you're a VC investing, you would be taking those, right? Because you're trying to get the hundred X thousand X outcome. But now as a growth investor, you're kind of saying like, Hey, maybe I put some structure in here. There's some downside protection. It's a different, it's a different investment you're making with different structure, but you're playing fundamentally a different game, looking for much, much larger outcomes. And there, you know, there's what, how many unicorn companies that have kind of raised at that valuation, like 1500, there's a lot. 2000. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. So that, right. Like, and you have healthcare investors that raise funds that are investing into like a subset of like a hundred funds that are publicly listed. Like that's their whole universe. And now it's like, you can have like a strategy that applies to a universe of a couple thousand companies that are like very valuable. Can some of those 10 X from here, maybe, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not venture investing in my mind. It's a, it's a different structure. It's probably more akin to growth than venture. Yeah, I I agree. It's, yeah, it's a like focused growth, or maybe there's a new emergent, you know, post venture hyper growth definition or something that that comes up in the next few years. No, great, great. I, I think a great tour of that from your perspective. So I, I appreciate that. How about compensation? Do you think compensation for venture and venture firms needs to adjust at all? I think this is one of the most nuanced topics mm-hmm. with respect to fund management, where a lot of the times it does feel like the founders of a firm, this isn't the right way to frame it, but care less about the compensation and more about like the ultimate outcome, right? Maybe mm-hmm. that's because they're such large owners of the firm where, you know, there's different ways to think about compensation, compensation in terms of salary is much less important to the founder VCs I'm talking to, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, once you're deep enough, I think into the game, like you care a lot more about carry and success of building, you know, a long-term 
oriented firm, successful firm. But yeah, if you start bringing in other people, like the way their compensation is structured is definitely going to affect their behavior. And as much as we like to think everyone's going to be a hundred percent founder line, that's just not from my experience, how it plays out. Right. It really is, you know, the incentives, right. Show me the incentive. I'll show you the outcome. Like it really is the incentives you kind of implement in the early days can potentially affect what firm you ultimately build. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I, I say it, you know, there's a lot of ways we could take this conversation, but it's a very nuanced topic from what I've seen. And, you know, these conversations are usually taking place behind closed doors and there's not a lot of, you know, public data around, you know, numbers, absolute numbers and how these structures play out. And, you know, it's almost like these structures can be dime a dozen. There's just so many of them. And, you know, what, what's the right one? I think this is a very idiosyncratic thing per per firm, mm-hmm. right? I think it's it's one of the hardest things to to figure out, and especially if you're starting out solo and growing from there, mm-hmm. right? I've I've seen people that have kind of fully cut the person in, but other people, right? They have a hard time going from solo to the second partner, and so they kind of have a grow from within approach, right? They just like it takes longer for them to build perspective on who do they want mm-hmm. in the business. But yeah, it's really, really, really fascinating topic. Well, it also, I think it also affects how they work with their founders and portfolio companies to some extent, because if you really subscribe to to power law as an example, I think you see cases where people just abandon those founders that are clearly not going to meaningfully contribute. If they're not that company for the fund, then is it binary in how they treat them as an example? And I think there's been some evidence that's shown that even if you can get more of the other ones to positive outcomes, that has real meaningful ultimate impact, but that still requires time and effort allocation. And so I, th- those are the places where I find it really interesting too. And to your point on what are the behaviors that are being encouraged and reinforced that may or may not all be just comp based, right? Could also be brand and reputation. Yeah, I don't know if there's a big enough conversation about like how do they do it in the the real estate world or how do they do it at other asset classes? Like mm-hmm. what is what does alignment look like there? Like actual alignment and reinvesting into the business and sure. reinvesting into your your outcomes. Like how much how much conviction do you have if you're a you know founder VC and you're investing one percent into the fund mm-hmm. right like is that true alignment right that doesn't feel like you know you have actual skin in the game right so i mean if you just look at the financial models of how vc works you know one percent is not significant in terms of the numbers we're talking about and how the cash flows right so you know they're but the market is the market right mm-hmm. it's kind of can one person set the market price? No, there's thousands of operators out there and there's decades of tradition of like how the market actually works. But yeah, I think if you want to differentiate, right? And kind of say, hey, look at me, right? Like I am demonstrating a different type of alignment and you are your behavior is different. Like that could be a positive thing for LPs. And yeah, if you're talking about founder VC dynamics, like that can be a positive thing for you know, that relationship as well, where, 
you know, if you're driving the Lamborghini into the yep. parking lot of a board meeting, right, that might be kind of a tough pill to swallow for people that are, you know, working for equity and upside. Yeah, I I've I mean I've seen that where I've been able to talk to founders where I say, look, like we're we're a considerable percentage of our fund personally. So this is my money in your company. So you you can understand why I'm so interested in what's going on here beyond just the fact that yeah. we want we want to try to help you. It's something I think about a lot. Like have have emerging managers really put their own money to work. It's a very different feeling than investing someone else's money, mm-hmm. right? Like there is no house money. It's your money. That's right. And how do you feel when you invest it, right? Like this isn't a bet anymore. Like this is like your lifestyle mm-hmm. that's at stake. And so I think when, I don't know if a lot of people have that perspective in the recent market, right? Again, like if money is cheap, Right. And the market dynamics change so that you're actually less aligned with the VC structure. Like, you know, if they commit less capital and management fees go up, right. That's kind of a divergence of, and I actually think it's a healthy thing to really know what it means to be like an angel investor, to put your own money to work. Or if you're a fund manager to write, write, write those GP commitment checks, like that's meaningful. Like, and then you, I think it changes your perspective on how you invest. I think it's a very positive thing for the market. And, you know, I think some of that behavior over the last 10 years has diverged and you haven't even had to put up any capital Mm -hmm. to like form an SPV or right to invest kind of into, into these opportunities. And the reality is venture is very risky. Right. And so you kind of want to make sure you're aligned with the outcome and high confidence in the outcome. And I think you can affect and improve the decision-making process if you write your own money into deals. Totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about cool water. You kind of, you know, at least briefly described it earlier, but I'm, I'm curious why you decided to do it. I started investing at a multifamily office but also manage capital on behalf of endowments and foundations and kind of learn the ropes there of like what it meant to be an LP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved over and had a really special experience investing, but also building. So it felt like the role of an entrepreneur and, you know, the building part gave me perspective that, you know, to build a fund was more than just investing. Like there mm-hmm. are these other parts of it. And we were investing into VC funds and we were even investing into first time VC funds. And I was playing a role of helping those funds understand different things as they built their fund ones. And I was gaining perspective on the fact that there were different functions with respect to building, building a firm, right? Like there's the management company, there's the fund, then you raise multiple funds and Again, like there's different things you're doing. You're not just mm-hmm. investing. You're managing the business. You're building out the operations. You're hiring. You're performing diligence. You're building a value-added function. There's all these things now that you had to do. And for me, like I wanted to play coach, right? Like I actually mm-hmm. wanted to 
probably to like, what does that value mean? Right. It's a very diluted term. And yes. so for me, it was like, how do I understand the different perspectives, right? Like I've invested into over 105 funds in the last 13 years and I've helped launch 200 funds like through cool water. And so the perspective wasn't like, I know better than you, mm -hmm. but it's, do I know different perspectives, right? So if you're going to be the equivalent of a board member for a fund one and help someone really understand the different functions involved, but also what have other people done successfully or unsuccessfully? And can I actually train that and help people like get up to speed faster? That was kind of the idea behind an incubator accelerator program. And I'd done that a number of years as an institutional LP. And then I did it three years as a consultant, like helping different firms kind of understand, you know, what their strategic positioning should be you know, what their back office setup should be, how they should pull together their track record and narrative, you know, how they should think about their, you know, quote unquote, go to market. And so all of those things I thought were relevant to the fact where, you know, if you're, if you're the founder of a VC firm, you're becoming, you know, the CEO and training of your VC firm. And so like, could you coach CEOs to be better CEOs? Could you coach founders to run their businesses better? I think that was the core concept. Mm -hmm. And then from there, the extrapolation was like, okay, if you can do it successfully with a couple of people, can you do it at scale? And I think that was a key concept that changed, you know, okay, I can do it, you know, with two people on a consulting basis, but can I do it with 20 people mm -hmm. on a cohort basis? And will, will it be a better experience, which is really important? Right? Will it dilute the experience or will it enhance the experience? Mm -hmm. And what I noticed, you know, asking a bunch of friends basically to do the first cohort, you know, kind of saying like, hey, just believe it. This is going to be a crazy thing, but, you know, no one's ever done this, but like, just do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And just trust the process. And the, again, like the enhancing the experience was like very clear, mm -hmm. like the outcomes were better. Right. And again, I think a lot of VCs invest on the back of a network effects thesis, right. Of, you know, you, know, you play the game of telephone. It's like the more people in the network, the better, right. The more powerful it becomes. And so while the idea was like, okay, can you scale consulting and scale coaching, right? Like ultimately that leads to managing a community and managing the network effects across that community that becomes the more interesting dynamic ultimately mm -hmm. versus like, I'm going to train this person and teach them something. It's like, great. But really these are all just exceptionally smart people, right. Building like the next generation firms of tomorrow. So you're right. Like you're just kind of keeping the wheels on the track at that point. And like, mm -hmm. again, it's man managing the community now and enabling the community more so than teaching like one specific thing, right. That's incremental. It makes someone like incrementally smarter. As the community's grown, are your metrics of success, value, creation, are those staying consistent or are they changing? That's such a good question. Yeah. So there's a few KPIs, right? Like mm -hmm. we had a hundred percent success rate in cohorts one, two, three, every single fund that came through our program got into business mm -hmm. successfully. That's huge. And most of them exceeded their targets. So we were clearly doing something on the right on the picking side 
But again, like who cares? We're not taking enough risk, right? If you're like, hey, I never lost money in a deal. It's right. You're <laughs> that's like, right. okay. That's right. That's, well, I think maybe, that same way like you do there. That's not how everybody thinks. Like but, maybe, maybe yeah. you left a lot of money on the table. Mm -hmm. It's like great, you 2x your portfolio and you sure. never lost money. But like, right, like that it felt like, okay, great. Maybe we're a private equity strategy versus like a VC strategy if like we're not losing money in any deals. So I think the idea was, okay, how do you take more risk? The other element was like this idea of actually creating something different in the early stage VC ecosystem, actually different, like a differentiated platform, not another fund of funds, but a unique differentiated platform, right? Where anyone in the world who's an aspiring GP could come to Coolwater and run through that journey, fund zero through fund five, whatever mm -hmm. the number is until you're, you know, you're off to the races and you need no one's help ever again. But who, who is the platform globally that does that? Mm -hmm. Right. And so for us, like, it's about getting folks who are very helpful to founders who are going to be net accretive to the venture ecosystem. We're trying to get those people into business and help those people, right? That's the curation that's happening. Good investors, great investors. They're going to generate returns for their LPs, but they're going to do that in a way that's, again, net accretive to the venture ecosystem holistically. And like, mm -hmm. these are people that are net positive to be on the cap table and to help founders, right? Like that is definitely an initial screen, but yeah, the way the business is managed, I don't know if the KPIs necessarily changed, but the way the business is managed, it means like, like I said, it's kind of going from more of a educational center, center and academy to, you know, generating more engagement, managing it more like a community, making sure that, you know, as it scales and we have now folks that have graduated years ago that have been very successful, raise lots of money or onto their N plus one, N plus two funds, like, right. Like generating that kind of give back culture and attitude Right. That that's that's I think how it's evolving. I don't know if the KPIs necessarily change. Like we want to help every single best next generation fund that's launching in the whole world every year. Like we want them to come through cool water. Hmm. Right. Like that would be that would be, you know, the success story. But it's, you know, that, that KPI really doesn't change. Every year we want to meet with the best new funds and like work with them and help them get off the ground. But I think the way the business is managed has changed like fundamentally. Mm. Thanks for sharing. I'm curious you, when you meet a first time, you know, whether it was some of the folks that came through your cohorts or you've met through the process, are there any things that you've consistently seen that you either say, wow, they're going to be great at this or the other side where you go, ooh, they're really going to struggle, I think. There's probably two two quick answers to the, are they going to be great? One, right, having, again, meeting with a thousand plus funds a year, mm -hmm. having invested into a hundred plus, you know, over the last decade plus, like there's kind of a screen you get as an LP where you know it's going to resonate with other allocators. Mm. So I think that, and that screen is a combination of, right, like the, the team, the strategy, the track record, kind of, you know, what the person's actually building. You know, there's a lot of kind of kind of quick check boxes where you can be like, okay, this this seems really interesting, right? It passes the you know interesting screen. The other piece is just like the personality of the person, 
right? Like how much do they want it? And like, how, how much do they understand that this is going to be a fundraising job, right? For the next two years versus an investing job. And so, yeah, some of it comes down to like understanding, you know, their, their background, but also their, their perspective and motivation to get the fund off the ground. I think, yeah, they don't necessarily, you know, hits hit on some of those markers that are, you know, kind of table stakes in this market for getting LPs to lean in and get excited. Like wh where, where do people struggle? Probably if they, in this market, right? Not necessarily in a 2021 market, but if they do it too soon, right? Like if they are too impatient or you can get mm -hmm. away with that, I think two, three years ago, it's harder to get away with that today. If you're starting, starting too soon, but you gotta, you gotta start somewhere at the same time. I think it's really tough where some folks come to me and they've never made an investment. And so we actually have a way to kind of help them again, if they're, they can still be helpful to the VC ecosystem and helpful to founders, even if they've never made an investment. So we've kind of built this other program that mm -hmm. helps them plug into just, you know, those first few investments with, with our community. But again, like that's, that's going to be a struggle where they might have the best idea in the world, but if they don't have the ability to you know, execute on that idea because they don't have the past experience, that's really tough. And the other thing there is I usually ask people that come in with no track record to like really just ask themselves internally, like, you know, do you want to be an investor, right? If you've never made an investment before and you're telling yourself, you know, do you want to be an investor? Like, are you lying to yourself? Mm. Right. Or maybe you're not, but you just don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think you have to make a few investments to really understand. Do you, do you really like it? Like, do you like the intellectual exercise, like the risk-taking exercise, right? The portfolio construction exercise. Like, do you, do you like that type of stuff? The answer might be, might be no. So that that's kind of a struggle. Or they don't know if yet. I, yeah. To your point. Yeah. If I, if I meet, meet people along those lines. Uh, super helpful perspective. Well, in the, the last few minutes we have, certainly would love to just go a little deeper on you, Winter. W what was it that sort of initially got you interested in this ecosystem at all, as far as startups, investing in them, this venture asset class? What, what was it that drew you to it initially? I think I've always had an affinity towards business and being an entrepreneur, like most people, maybe not like most people, but like most people had a pumpkin stand growing up. Right. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, and you know, the thing about a farm stand is like, it takes some patience, right? You can't just like mix the lemonade necessarily and sell it the same day. Like you have to wait six months and like nurture the mm -hmm. fields. And then like, so there's some like patience of like nurturing a portfolio. So just early on, definitely more entrepreneurially leaning. And and then yeah, venture. It was from a professor at Oxford, I'd say, that gave me the advice. You know, where I was studying innovation largely, but yeah, you know, it's his advice to move to the Bay Area, mm. right? He's like, hey, if you want to really go deep on venture and innovation and That's technology, yeah, this is the place you you know at least you want to spend some, if not a lot of time in. And so, you know, looking back, that definitely was a pivotal moment. And then you kind of, you know, being there, right? Like the Bay Area 
has a certain culture of, mm-hmm. you know, and is, you can still find these people of risk seeking behavior and selflessness and trying to grow the pie bigger. Right. I think being around that mentality is very important mm-hmm. at some point, like, especially earlier in your career. Yeah. And it's not um, universal. I mean, I think, you know, this, like that is not a universally held view globally and even in other parts of the U S it's not. Yeah. No. And if you, if you believe the world is zero sum, then you've missed the point of venture. That's right. And I don't know if you're ever going to be a successful venture capitalist, if you don't understand the growing the pie bigger approach. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important fundamental concept that feels exceptional in certain places, the Bay area included. Mm. So, So powerful. And such good advice, I think, for anyone. I mean, I think whether you're going to end up in venture, just being able to see that the world is positive sum and abundant is uh, such a useful learning as early as possible, I feel like. I, I find that you know people that are as successful as you have certain disciplines or rituals that they've found really help them. Any of those that you have? Rituals I do on a daily basis or what? regularly or just certain disciplines you kind of hold yourself accountable to? Does working 20 hours a day count as a discipline? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like growing up on a farm. Yeah, just having having a hard work ethic, I think is absolutely Growing up on a farm teaches you a work ethic that most people don't appreciate. So wake wake up at at 4 a.m. to thaw the pipes so Mm -hmm. the cows can drink water in the middle of winter so they don't die and your family can persist another year. I think, yep. yeah, there's, there's their perspective of like that work ethic, but daily rituals. No, I think it, I think it comes down to more work ethic. Like I mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the, I like the space of either walking or running or biking or skiing and thinking, mm-hmm. right? Like having some space to think where, you know, it's good to run super hard, but again, this is the idea of thinking on the business versus in the business, mm. right? And and I think this might be more true for, again, like CEOs or founders or folks that are managing, but taking some space to think strategically, pretty like consistently, right? It doesn't have to be every day necessarily as a ritual, but mm-hmm. maybe it's monthly or quarterly or even yearly. But like the idea to say like, is this working? Mm-hmm. And do I have the power to change it, right? And having the perspective of, of some things you're powerless towards, you just can't control as much as you like to think you can, right? Like I am not on the investment committee of thousands of LPs, mm-hmm. right? But can you influence how someone understands a fun product and a strategy, right? Or right? like there's certain business decisions you can make that feel irreversible and there's some you can make that are definitely reversible. And I think like rituals to me, like, you know, strategically, can be that. Right. And so I'm very much a big believer in like, you know, trying to consistently, you know, evolve myself and like, you know, make progress personally as well as professionally. And so I think like you have to force yourself into these like thinking habits Hmm. that, you know, again, like that's more kind of strategic and, and business oriented, but I think it also is like, you know, for mental health, like it's like a good thing to have rituals where like you feel like you're in a safe space because absolutely again like the business is like it's so hard it's like something like that isn't necessarily always talked about is like 
how hard business actually is mm-hmm. like for people that are running, like trying to truly make an impact and running a thousand miles an hour every day. But again, like I think the rituals for me sometimes like, okay, let me detach a little bit and have that moment to reflect and think like, that's kind of how I use my rituals. And I think that's, that's helpful for me at least to give me a little bit of space, at least that's four great. hours a day of yeah, I can work the other well, what I'm what I'm hearing there too that I so appreciate is it also helps you know that term detach is so useful because I, I find far too often, particularly with founder entrepreneurs, that they wrap their entire identity in this startup or this company. And we're all more than that one thing. We need to be passionately driven, committed, and in it, but we're all more than that. And I think that is healthy just even to, to create that space. Like I need to not just be in it, but also continue to to think on it, work on it from outside. So I, I, I think it's yeah. very useful that you're what you're doing and, and great advice for others. Yeah. It's interesting how perspective changes when like you go through a traumatic experience mm-hmm. and I think starting a startup or a company is traumatic, you know, and is, you know, just starting is traumatic, but yeah, I'm like mm-hmm. going through it a couple of times. And I think it, that's when people like refer to the grit and resilience. It's like, at some point you just, you love it so much. You just keep pushing forward, right. No matter sure. how many times you get, get knocked down. And yeah, like you said in the beginning, right. Just the persistence over time, like being around for long enough and building experience that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it does, it does add up in VC, even if it feels like at a snail's pace. No, I totally, totally agree. It's yeah. Survive long enough to have, have the right timing and luck and good decision-making all, all line up at least enough. But VC is so funny, right? Like the people I met in like your question on, you know, who, who's the best. It's like, I feel like those people are so impatient, mm. but they're so patient at the same time right? Like every day is like, I need to get all this done. Right. But at the same time, like they're in VC. And so success comes over longer cycles. That's right. And, you know, they've done thousands and thousands and thousands of cycles by the time, like they see an outcome. I feel like the people that internalize that, that's going to be part of the process. Like, you know, you don't see it overnight. You don't see it in a year, but, you know, fast forward a couple of years, like, those are the people that seem to be building like big companies and interesting mm. firms. Such such great perspective. Well, last question, as you think ahead for you, what are you most excited about for Coolwater this year? And I know you've got some other things on your plate. Like I, I heard rumblings of another book. So curious what you're most excited about this year. So yeah, looking to launch or I guess publish the second book, how to set up a venture capital fund. We've built the strategic CFO program which is focused on building back offices. We think that's going to be a really important theme for emerging Mm -hmm. managers, especially if you want to go from fund one to fund two or fund two to fund three. Like, have you built the business to pass operational due diligence? So the book is kind of in line with that, that new program. I'm excited about that program as, you know, as fascinating or as boring as it sounds. But I do think that's a really, like as the market shifts a little bit harder to fundraise, Mm -hmm. you know, table stakes are up. Again, like who, what, who's the platform that's like helping emerging managers kind of get, get to the next step. And I really believe in the emerging manager story and the importance of emerging managers for, you know, early stage VC and, and VC generally. 
so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, about that. And, you know, we're also doing more of these salon events, you know, name, name subject to change, but these events where we're like basically now with a big enough community going really deep on themes and technology and really mm-hmm. helping LPs get more connected into the world of early stage venture and kind of really understanding what they're investing into. Uh, we did, you know, roughly 25 of those events last year in 2023 and expect a similar number this year. But, you know, I think, you know, are there, are there LPs that are excited about venture? Our view is yes. Mm-hmm. We want them to be, again, like as smart as we can make them through a community approach to, to make wise decisions allocating into, into early stage venture. So yeah, excited about those two things for 2024. Winner, thank you so much. This was a fun conversation as I knew it would be. I so appreciate even even as you said, the the infrastructure back office side, having gone through my first fund audit, having had to build out a lot of these things in the in the last yeah. couple of years, I can so appreciate the very necessary, maybe not always feeling most as strategic, but critical and, you know, just your patience and willingness to, to help in that area. I'm excited to find things for us to collaborate on. So glad we could come together on this conversation and look forward to, to doing more. So thank you again for joining. Thanks, Gary. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.